You're listening to Christ-Centered Preaching, Preparation and Delivery of Sermons, Lesson 16. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. Gifts received from supporters like you help us continue this exciting work. Please partner with us so that millions all over the world can continue to receive and share in the life-changing message of the gospel. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage. That's worldwide-classroom.com. Thanks for your support. For our midterm review questions, this is for the beginning of Lecture 16. What's the main thing to be done in an expository sermon according to Broadus? I hope you know that's application. So the main thing to be done. What distinguishes instructional specificity and situational specificity? So we broke uh, down application into four components, instructional specificity, situational specificity, motivation and enablement, those four things. What's the difference between instructional specificity and situational specificity? Instructional is what to do. What is situational specificity? Where to do it? So what versus where? What are some key characteristics of the commonsensical applications? Oh, you could say a number of things, but I typically go with relevant, realistic, and achievable. Relevant, realistic, and achievable. What key distinction should be kept in mind when making concrete applications? Here I'm looking that you know the difference between a Good idea and a what? A biblical mandate. That you know the difference between a good idea and a biblical mandate. Church goes to war when you typically make mandates out of good ideas. And would you add to your list of questions, where does one get the terms for instructional specificity? Where does one get the terms for instructional specificity? Specificity. Where do they come from? Where do they rain down from? Key terms of the subpoints. So instructional specificity, key terms of the subpoints. What if you don't have subpoints? Where do they come from? The magnet clause of the main point, if you don't have. So where do you get the key terms for instructional specificity? Those are the key terms of the subpoints, or if you don't have subpoints, from the magnet clause of the main point. What I want us to do for a while now is go over the the, uh, devotional assignments. So you've gotten that um, handed out to you today. And I want to go over this with some level of detail because uh, roughly a week from today, we start doing devotionals. And uh, you've already got a lot of it done. So let me kind of remind you where we are in the course We've gone over kind of the overall structure now of the whole message. We've done it. We've done introduction, proposition, main points, the components of explanation as we looked at how the subpoints typically divide the explanation component. We've talked about illustration. We've talked about application. And we recognize that it gets repeated in another main point or two prior to the conclusion. Now what we want to do is practice this thing. So this main point is basically what we're going to extract and make into a short devotional. So what I'm going to ask you to do is get practice in 
explanation, illustration, application by looking at your outlines that you've already turned in and gotten feedback on and say, how could I make a devotional out of one of those main points? It's going to require you to do some modification, obviously. You're going to have to create some sort of introduction and conclusion. But basically, my intention is to give you a, a, a working out on explanation, illustration, application by preparing a devotional that you'll then present to other people in the class. And that's what we're going to talk about here. So here's what this assignment says. Devotional assignment. The description. Each devotional should be seven to eight minutes. Over nine minutes will be penalized. So you're saying approximately two pages. So if you're just thinking about kind of standard margins and type and what we've been preparing this semester, it's about a two-page assignment. It should contain an introduction and conclusion. It should have a clearly and properly worded proposition. Probably your main point is going to be converted into a prop, simply going to become the proposition, right? So probably the main point statement will function as your proposition. Uh, should have thought development, including explanation, subpointed if necessary, illustration, and application. So what you're going to do is you're going to come to actually different areas of the campus and be prepared to present a devotional that will be one of your main points modified so it's a complete package in itself. Notes, the text need not be read by each person. About a third of you will be working out of the same passage in every section. So you can simply say, I'm preaching out of the First Thessalonians passage or something or the Hebrews passage, that's enough. I'm not intent that you read over and over and over again the passage. B, the explanation and application of the, one of the main points of your final project may well serve as the body of your devotional if you wrap them with an introduction and conclusion. Well, that's again just saying taking one of your main points and making it your devotional is my intention. C, an illustration does not need to be in the body of the devotional if one is used in the introduction and or conclusion. Here's kind of what I'm saying. If you do illustration for the introduction and illustration in the body of this little seven or eight minute and another illustration in the conclusion, you haven't got time to do anything but illustrations. So, uh, you know, there, you have other kinds of introductions that you can do. You can do startling statement. You can simply do straightforward, this is what I'm going to talk about. You might do a grand style conclusion instead of a illustrative conclusion. I'm not concerned, but I would not encourage you to use three illustrations in this one short little message, okay? I would say probably use the introduction illustration as the illustration for the whole thing is what most of you will do. So probably the introduction illustration for most of you will be the only illustration you use, and that's just fine. Here's how the class will be arranged. For two days, the class will be divided into smaller group sections and assigned to various rooms. Go directly to your group's assigned room at the beginning of each class hour. If you look at the second page of what you got, it only says what group you're in. It says where you will be meeting. So a week from today, most of you will not come here. Okay, you will go directly to that place. Number two... Five students will give a devotional in each group each day. Now, most of you are in groups of nine, so five the first day, and sometimes people just don't get done, so that last person will flip over into the second day. But my intention is that you can get five done the first day. It takes pressure off the second day. 
Three, during each devotional, the designated moderator will time each speaker and indicate elapsed time, especially at the final two and one minute marks and at the end. Here's what you do. You count down from eight minutes. And when six minutes are elapsed, you do this. <laughs> two minutes left. When seven minutes are elapsed, you go one minute left. This is the person who's the moderator. And then when eight minutes are elapsed, you go stop. You give them one more minute. If they haven't finished, you stand up and say sit down. <laughs> okay, so nine, if, we won't, if you go nine, ten, twelve minutes apiece, we'll never get done. So the goal is eight minutes or less. Now you're saying who are the moderators? See the names with the asterisks? Those are the guys who are responsible to time everybody else. And then to do one more thing, two more things actually. One is to lead a discussion. So the person who is the moderator will do just as I did when we were doing introductions and conclusions. We'll stand up and say, could you hear them? Was it organized? Did they stand up straight? Did it make sense? Was the application telling us what we need to know to do or believe now? Is there appropriate exhortation? I will give everyone an evaluation uh, guide, which is how that discussion will proceed. And everybody will fill out the evaluation. Okay. But the moderator will briefly go through it. So item four says this. During each devotional, each listener should fill out a devotional evaluation form for each speaker. I will bring those to the class next time. After each presentation, the designated moderator of each group will go up to the front of the room. It may be a small enough room that you can just stand there and do it. Go up to the front of the room and lead the group in a five-minute interactive evaluation of each student's devotional, both in terms of its content and delivery, using the criteria in the devotional evaluation form. Six, after each evaluation, the moderator will collect and keep separate the forms for each speaker and give them to me at the conclusion of the hour in the foyer of the chapel. You'll be spread out all over the campus, but I'll be waiting in the foyer of the chapel here at the end of the hour to collect the evaluation forms for everybody who's spoken that day. Seven, you will not turn in your devotional. Students' grades are tabulated peer responses on the devotional evaluation forms. So your grade is what your peers say. Be nice to them. <laughs> Here's the goal. We want to encourage one another. That's the goal. It's, it's, not, to, you know, it's not to rip people off at the knees. It, it really is to say, that was good. Or, you know, I really know what your intent was, but I, did, I don't think you explained it in a way that everybody would get it. So if we're not honest, we don't help people. If we are overly critical or harsh, we don't help people. It's both things together. It's speaking the truth in love. That's the goal of what we're going to do. Alan? Can you use a text other than the assigned text? No. So we're on the assigned text that you've already been working on. Number three, and I'll remind you later, on the next class day after completing all devotionals and the semester exams. So here's where we are. We'll do the first set of devotionals the day before Thanksgiving. When we get back from Thanksgiving break, we'll do the second day of devotionals. The day after that is the exam. So you're going to think, after that, what do you do? You'll come back here. Okay. 
when you do, bring everything that you have turned in this semester. Because what we will then do is move into separate groups, which will be working on the final assignment. And that final assignment is putting together a group sermon. So having the material that you've been evaluated on to contribute to that process will be appropriate for the day following the exam. We'll all come back here together, but I'll separate you into new groups. They will be all people who have worked on that particular assignment. And everybody who's worked on that particular assignment will be contributing out of their material toward what that assignment is. So after the exam, I'll ask you to bring everything that you've been evaluated on and come back to help the group with that material. Okay, so the big picture is you'll take a main point and you're going to convert it into a devotional. The idea would be somebody has said to you, could, could you do a five-minute devotional before the men's prayer breakfast? Or the kids are going on a retreat this weekend, and while we're in the parking lot, could you give a devotional before we get in the cars and head off? Or there's a women's Bible study group, and what, what we'd like to have you do is, um, prior to us dividing into small groups, could you give the whole group a devotional for five minutes? Well, I'm giving you eight minutes. But the idea is to have a devotional on a text of Scripture that allows you to explain what it means, illustrate what it's about, and apply it. Which is, as I say, kind of the, not only a mini-sermon, but even what a single main point will be doing. Let me see if you have general questions about, uh, about what we will be doing. Again, we're not talking about next time, but the time after next. Okay, so it's a week from today. Burris. It's a great question. Who is your audience? I would plan for the people to whom you know you will be speaking. Okay. Now, um, listen, everyone knows that when you do homiletics in a classroom setting, it's artificial. That's not news to anyone. But you can make it more artificial, you know, by... And now for all you teens out there, everybody's going, who is he talking to, you know? So, you know, I I would come prepared to speak to these persons that you know will be in the room with you. Now, remember, they are not just seminary students. Okay? They are not just... They are people who work for employers. They are people with families. They are people who struggle with anger and doubt and lust. They are people who wonder where the next dollar is coming from. So they, they are not just people wrestling with seminary issues, although that's not wrong to address either. But it's... It, You know, we're whole people, and I think coming prepared to minister to the people you know you'll be talking to will make it truly a spiritual experience as, in other words, I wouldn't come to fake it. I'd come really to minister to people. Yes? Just where you're listed. First five will go on on the first day. The last four will go on the second day. Now, somebody says, I can't be there on the first day. Trade with somebody. My one caveat is, let them know you traded. Okay? Because if you run out of time and we can't evaluate you, we can't evaluate you. Okay? So you're expected to be there on the first day if you're in the first... Well, everybody's expected to be there. But, uh, but you're up to bat if you're in the first five on the first day. And you're, you know, if you're in the last four, then that's where you are too. If you cannot be there, make sure somebody takes your slot. Or else we may not be able to get to you. Deanne? Uh, will these be the same groups that we would do our final 
will these be the same groups that you do your final project with? No. Be a different group. Because these groups include people that from all three passages. So these groups have people who are working with all three passages. The last group will be people who have only worked with one passage. Okay, Ed? Yes, you are, but you're going to do it. You are going to complete the sermon you've been working all semester, but as a group. You're going to do it as a group together. But remember, if you don't like the sermon the group puts together, you can still turn in your own individual one. We'll get there. <laughs> don't worry. Do this assignment first. <laughs> yeah. Stephen. Your subpoints. Yeah, for the conclusion here, you would be recapping your subpoints. Most of you will probably be doing grand style conclusions. Most of you, I mean, again, there can be exceptions, but most of you will probably do an illustrative introduction. Then you will do some explanation, application, and then do kind of final exhortation as conclusion. That's what most people will do. Let's pray and do material we need to do today. Britain? Do you need to cover the whole text? No, you probably can't. You're probably going to have to do a portion of that's a good question. You're, you're only, you know, only what you kind of announced your main point's going to be dealing with. Let's pray together. Father, we get to the point now of proclaiming your word to each other. And we ask for you to give us your spirit to do that. We recognize that we can make it very artificial. And certainly there are those in our world who view every church experience as artificial and performance. But we can ourselves, Father, change that by coming to minister to your people with your word, believing that you are present in your word and that you will truly be ministering even as we speak by your spirit. When we say that the word of God preached still is the word of God, we think what we come to do, even in the devotional times, has heavenly weight. And so we ask for you to give us a sense of seriousness as well as joy in what you give us to do. Grant us a sense of privilege, we pray, that we might honor you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to talk about some of the glue that puts these messages together. The goal in Lecture 16, and if I can today, I'm going to move through most of Lecture 17 as well. But for first, the goal of Lecture 16 is to understand how sermon components and listener dialogue are knit together through the use of effective transitions and what's called pulpit dialogue. Now, that's a very fancy way of talking about it. Today, we're going to talk about the glue. We've talked about the components, explanation, illustration, application, proposition, main points, subpoints, conclusion. We've talked about all these pieces. Now, let's remember the old Kentucky Fried Chicken commercial, parts is parts, you know, and we're, we're not going to do all parts now. We're going to say what ties them together, and that is something that I know is just truly inspirational to you. This is a lecture on transitions. <laughs> well, they can make messages, um, how should I say, logical and listenable to people, and that's our goal. So as we think of the function of transitions, before we get into the details, what would you say is the function of transitions? It is to make our messages artistically listenable, right? This thing has some flow to it. Transitions make the message artistically listenable, and logically connected. Artistically listenable and logically connected. 
Now, just to see it visually, already you know a lot of how to do this because we've talked about what happens at these different nodes, as it were, in the double helix. We know we start with a main point statement and typically at the end of explanation, before we get into the illustration, we have some sort of summary that typically happens. And we know at the end of the illustration, there's another summary that happens, an interpreting statement, that's also preparation for the application. So the proposition was saying what the rest of the sermon is about. That's one node that comes at the end of the introduction. The main point is a summary that prepares for explanation, summary, illustration, summary, application. And as you might guess, there's going to be some transition before the next main point. But I think you begin to see things like this main point are probably going to sound a whole lot like that summary. And that summary at the end of the explanation is probably going to sound a whole lot like that interpreting statement summary at the end of the illustration. So there are these places where there are reflections of main ideas that are doing two things. They are reminding what has come before and they are preparing for what will follow. They are reviewing and previewing. Reviewing and previewing. And that's kind of what illustrations do. So, to look more extensively at the notes there under function, don't forget the double helix. Each node, in whichever order the components appear, is a summary of what preceded and a thematic statement of what will follow. That is, again, reviews and previews. Transition is made easier by remembering what you illustrate or apply is always the last thing you said in the preceding material. Components are tied, therefore, by the parallel concepts and often terminology that connect them. So, the summaries are not only conceptually reminding where we've been, they are terminologically pulling the strings together again so that we're ready for what will follow. Roman 2, if you think about the nature of transitions, the nature of transition, the process by which main point components are tied together conveys the more general nature of transitions within and between main points. So, main points have transitions within and also between. The basic definition, transitions demonstrate or develop the relationships of the parts to the whole. Transitions show the relationships of the parts to the whole or the parts to other parts. <laughs> I really sound like a fried chicken commercial here. Parts to other parts. Transitions may relate. I'm going to give you about five things here. The introduction to the body of the message. What's the transition that relates the introduction to the body of the message? It's the proposition. Sure. It's a form of transition. It relates the introduction to the body of the message. You know what? You're, you're far enough along now. I hope you've even discovered something else. The proposition you now recognize is a combination of principle plus application. And we just, because we need to do some mechanical things to get ourselves going down a course, we said that the key terms of both clauses of the proposition principle and application will appear in the introduction. That was just a mechanical thing to do. But I hope what you've begun to see now is this illustration, this introduction, is actually illustrating the relationship of the principle and application. It's not just saying, let me just illustrate the principle. It's typically not saying, just let me illustrate the application. 
typically the introduction is illustrating how these two things play off of one another. What's the relationship of the principle and application is typically what that introduction is doing. So for a while, we've kind of put ourselves just in there. All right, just get the terms in there. But what we're really going for when we said the terms of both clauses is we were forcing ourselves to think there's a relationship of these clauses. And what I'm really illustrating is the relationship of the principle and application is what's being introduced in the introduction, which means, in a sense, even the introduction was glue. It was getting principle and application tied together conceptually by the illustration that was being used. So, the introduction is being tied to the body of the main point of the sermon by uh, and transition. What else is happening? The proposition is tied to the first main point. That's another way that we use transitions. The proposition is tied to the first main point, often with a question. Remember, we talked about that concept of interrogate the proposition. We make a strong statement because Christ is our salvation. We should proclaim him. How do we go about doing that? How do we proclaim him? Because he is our salvation, we proclaim him to difficult people. Oh, often we ask a question after the proposition as the form of getting into the first main point. We'll also use transitions to relate main points to each other. Obviously, we'll use transitions to tie the components of main points to each other. That is, explanation, illustration, application. And we'll use transitions to tie the body of the message to the conclusion. So we look at all the parts and say transitions are hooking these things together. We use transitions because careful transitions help the listener follow the speaker's thought throughout the progress of the message. Item C, how are they used? Transitions may review where we have been. Transitions review where we have been and preview where we are going. Now, if on the uh, exam that we give, I'm asking you what are the main functions of illustrations, those first two things I just said are the things you'll, you can always identify, review and preview. Transitions are reviewing and preview. Those are the two main things conceptually that are going on, review and preview. Number three Transitions may relate in immediate matter to the overall theme. We will begin calling those tiebacks. They review an immediate matter to the overall theme. So I'm tying back where I am immediately to the overall purpose and flow of the message. So something that relates in immediate matter to the overall theme we'll call a tieback. Number four, a transition may also interest the listener in a new thought or the relationship between thoughts. This is more the preview side. And we'll call these billboards. It says, here's what's ahead. Okay? So a tieback goes back to what was before. Reminds us what things were overall. But a billboard is saying, here's what's ahead. Or five any combination of the above. Now, just a, a thought, and as you begin putting together a devotional, you'll begin to see it. If you just look at this thing in the abstract, you'll see, all right, I've got a main point statement, and then I go right into explanation. So, does my first subpoint, you know, main point statement, and then do I immediately have a subpoint? Well, in your outline you do, but it's not the way we talk. There's typically going to be a sentence or two of transition 
before I get to that first main point. And it will be saying, why am I dealing with that? How do we begin to understand how this will unfold? So typically, we don't just preach encyclopedic, you know, the population of Brazil is. <laughs> and then, you know, the chief main product is. The GNP is. You know, we don't do that. We, say, we, we tell it narratively. So after we state a main point, they'll say, now, now that I know I need to present, we need to present Christ to all kinds of difficult people. Now, we'll face them in various situations. We need to see the kind of people Paul faced. For instance, look at now, I just did about three sentences before I'm going to get to the first subpoint there. So, as a result, don't rush into subpoints after statement of the main point. Tell what you mean by the main point and explain how you support it with subpoints. Why are they ordered so? What causes us to consider the matter this way? The audience cannot see your outline. So, transitions keep tying components back to the central idea. A typical mark of sermon excellence is consistent use of tiebacks, tying it back. That is, transitions at the end of each major component of thought that tie that thought back to the sermon's main idea, particularly the FCF, the falling condition focus. As you begin working on your sermons now, one of the things I've cautioned you about is to look at your applications and say, are they tying back to the FCF? Because it's very easy when you're in the flow of a message to begin to talk about how this must apply somewhere. I know I've got to do application and come up with something that doesn't relate to what you said was the burden of the message. So as you have now gotten to the point of the main thing to be done, the application... Are you relating it to what you said was going to be the burden of the sermon? Is there a tie back? Is there a conceptual or transitional tie that says we are now still talking about what said we would do? There are different types of transitions. The first major one is A is dialogical, like dialogue, dialogical transitions. Dialogical transitions ask out loud the questions listeners would ask if they thought they could. Do you want to know what that means? It means, okay, I just ask a question out loud, right? You ask out loud the questions listeners would ask if they felt they could. Examples, obviously the who, what, when, where, why, and how, but have you ever heard a preacher saying a sermon now? I've talked to you about the fact that God knows tomorrow. How are we going to apply that to our lives? Ask the question out loud. I will tell you, people almost never tire of that question. How will we apply this? You could do that practically every sermon, and people would be just fine. But you can ask about explanation. How do we know this is true? If this won't work, what will? What plan does God offer for this? What comes next? Asking questions like this, this is the mindset to assume in creating all transitions. Whether you voice the question or not, you learn to hear the question in the mind of the listener and answer it. Now, think about that. If you are listening as the listener would listen to your message, what are the advantages to that? So, item two is asking questions out loud. What, what are the reasons to ask questions out loud in the sermon? Can you help me here? Why would you ask questions out loud? What does it do for your listener? If you'll ask questions that are in their heads, what does it do? Say again. Certainly gets their attention. 
you just see people kind of, when you ask a question out loud, they kind of, yeah, you know, so it, you make their heads come up. I was wondering about that. What else? Yes. Okay. Is it Chris? It makes you more credible. That it, Chris, say more. Why does it, it's very powerful what you said. Why does it make you more credible to ask questions? Exactly. It says, it, it's saying the preacher, you are in my head. You're thinking what I'm concerned about. So it has a very strong identification question. If you're going along and you're saying, you know, Christ knows tomorrow, and say, now I know what you're thinking. If he knows tomorrow, why is tomorrow so scaring me? That's exactly what I was thinking. You know, if, if you're actually asking their objections, you're not afraid of their objections. Or you're asking their doubts. You're not afraid of their doubts. Strong credit. You live where I live, and you're willing to ask what I'm really thinking. Question, Nelson? Okay, it makes you hungry for an answer. I will tell you, in our circles, it is not so common that preachers ask questions and then pause and wait for the answer. And I preach in a lot of Presbyterian circles, and so sometimes I'll pause and people will then give me the answer, and then they'll look embarrassed. Like, I guess I wasn't supposed to do that. But actually, the more I preached in those churches, the more people will begin responding. And of course, I want them to be responding. I want that feedback. I want that doubt, because it means now we're engaged together. Okay, you're thinking what I'm thinking. I'm thinking what you're thinking. We're exploring the Scriptures together. It's, it, it, it's part of it just because I, I love feeling like I'm connecting with people. And if I can get people thinking, if I know I'm thinking what they're thinking... It really enhances credibility. It involves the listener. It shows I'm interested in them. Okay? All those things just come by asking questions out loud. Some hints for using dialogical transitions. Remember the best explanation answers. The best explanation answers. How do we know this means what I just said? You know, I just said God knows tomorrow. Well, how do I know that's what this text means? Well, look at it. It says... So I'm going to begin analyzing, answering my own question. The best application answers, how do we apply this truth? I will tell you, I think you can ask that question every Sunday. The best illustration answers, how can we see this better in our own experience? But we typically don't say that. Okay? We don't typically say, how can I illustrate this? I mean, again, it creates that step, of, you're just doing something to me now, rather than involving me. How can we apply is engaging. How do I illustrate is disengaging. An important place to learn an analytical question is immediately after the proposition. A good question after the proposition sets up the reasoning for the main points. And again, the history, remember what that's called again? It's called interrogating the proposition. And you recognize, of course, you can do it after a main point statement too, can't you? That would be an analytical question and response setting up your subpoints. B, another form of transition, is logical connection. Logical connection. Now, it's a result of the dialogical process once you've thought about, now, what does this lead to? But you're not asking the question out loud. The basic form of a logical connection is not only, but also. Not only is this true, what we just covered, but also this. Now, if you can just kind of hear that. Not only, but also. What did I just do? Not only, what did I just do? Reviewed. But also, previewed. Review and not only, but also. Or that review and preview can take lots of different forms. But it's the basic 
Again, it's for Western thought. This comes out of some of you studied Latin. This is a basic Latin formulation, not only but also. And a lot of Western thought proceeds along this way. Not only, but also. Things like, if this is true, then these are the implications. Now, I didn't say not only, but also, but it's the same impact. Okay? If this is true, review, then these are the implications. Preview. Not only, but also. Our understanding is not complete until we also consider... It's another form of not only but also. Now, it can get much longer. God is loving, but that's not enough to warrant our trust. Good intentions don't make everything work out all right. That is why Paul continues his argument by saying God is sovereign. God does not just desire what is good. He accomplishes it. Because God is sovereign, we must trust him. Now, you see the main point comes at the end of that. But you've got about four sentences saying not only but also. Another form of transition, encyclopedic or numerical. Just encyclopedic or numerical. Now, this, this is the most inartistic, maybe the most uh, elementary, but it's not wrong. If I say, and second, what do I imply? If I say second, there's been a, there's been a first, and now we're ready for two. Now, you know, it's not exactly real artistic, but it is very clear. So to say that it's not artistic is not to say it's bad or wrong. Many times in the sermon we'll say first, second, third. The place where we'll typically get in trouble is if we say first too often. Okay? First I want you to know, and then after I say first about the main point, then I'll say first about the first sub-point. And then I say first about the first subpoint in the next main point. So I've got all these firsts going on in the sermon. So I need to use with some sparingly, you know, first, second, third. But at the same time, it certainly will work. Now, various forms of numericing things. The next thing we see, just the very word next, is a form of doing a numeric change and transition. My second point is, big caution here. Um, we do not say in sermons A, B, C, okay, to indicate subpoints. Now, you know, first I want you to understand God knows tomorrow. A, even if we don't. B, even if our friend, we don't say A, B, C, okay. That's, that's not the way we talk in normal conversation. Even the words finally and in conclusion, though we've already learned now they cause watch breaks, you know, we do recognize they also cause hope <laughs> occasionally, um, so if you need them, you recognize you're saying, now we've gotten to the end, and it is a form of numeric break. Another form of transition, parallel statement. Parallel statement. I'll just read it to you, and you'll pick it up. Recognize the review and the preview. It may sound insensitive to emphasize that God is the object of our faith. Until you remember the Scripture also teaches we are the object of God's affection. Using parallel words to say review and preview. E is pictorial or illustrative. Transitions that are pictorial or illustrative. Even the phrase, the flip side of the coin is, is a form of illustrative transition. See the coin? We looked at this side. Now we're going to look at that side. So even the phrase, the flip side of the coin but I've told you earlier in the class, remember the guy whose sermon was the, uh, the crash investigation approach? Now think of what he would say. 
He said, now, already we've determined the point of impact. Next, we need to determine, was it pilot error or mechanical error? Something he did or somebody else did? Well, it's just going through the illustration as a form of transition. The illustrative progress is also showing the transition of thought. Um, just the hint down there. Sometimes illustrations themselves can be great transitions, making us see relationships between points. These tr uh, transitions are saying in the same way. Now, we haven't talked about this yet, and I don't know that many of you will do it this semester, and that's, that's just fine. But it's actually taking the illustration and dropping it down between points and saying what I'm illustrating now is how this, particularly in a two-point message, where we said there's tension or balance, I want to show you in an illustrative form how I need the flip side, how I need the tension. So sometimes the illustration is showing the relationship between main points. Not just what one main point is about, sometimes an illustration shows the relationship between main points. If you don't do that this semester, don't worry. But it's something maybe just to tuck away for the future. Sometimes illustrations can show relationships between points. I did that in a sermon I did here just earlier in the semester when I talked about a, a student who in 92 was uh, killed here. And that was Mark Talbot. I don't know if some of you remember, I mentioned his wife, Mary, who did part of the devotional um, memorial service here. And she talked about Mark and his son going to see Jesus. And it was the end of her world, but the beginning of heaven. And that really was what I was talking about in that sermon. You've got to come to the end of this world before heaven opens to you. So I was really using a transition to talk about both main points together. It was the, the, the hinge between those two main points. And sometimes illustrations can work that way as well. You've already heard me mention F, which is tiebacks a couple of times. Tieback illustrations relate a matter just covered to the central idea first introduced. An example, we've talked about Christ being our high priest because it relates directly to our understanding of why we are not rejected simply because we sin. Now, what would you think is the FCF of this message? We fear that we are rejected because we sin. Because we sin, we feel we're be, fear we will be rejected. But I've said we've talked about Christ being our high priest because it relates directly to our understanding of why we are not rejected simply because we sin. So probably at the end of a main point, this preacher is tying back to the FCF. This is why we talked about this, because it relates to the burden of the message. It is particularly important to keep relating each main point to the FCF, since this keeps us developing a message rather than simply describing a text. I know that's strange language again, but it's thinking my job is not merely to describe the text but to develop the message as it relates to the burden of the Holy Spirit for the text. So I'm not just saying, here's something else to note. I'm saying, how does this thing that we are noting relate to the purpose of this sermon, which hopefully is the purpose of the passage as well. Another major category, and we're going to do some discussion of this, is item five, billboards. So we just talked about tiebacks, which is that review process, taking this and reviewing it to the major theme. But a very common pattern, and once you see it, it's powerful, is the use of billboards. What are billboards? Billboards are crystallized statements of key terms following main point statements. Crystallized statements of the key terms 
following main point statements or subpoint statements in the order they will appear. So I state those key terms in the order they will appear in what I'm about to talk about. Crystallized statements of the key terms of following main points or subpoints in the order they will appear. Billboards typically occur right after the proposition in which they use the key terms of the magnet clauses of the main points to say what's coming. So it's a transition that's right in here that uses the key terms of the main points. Another key place for billboards is right after the main point that use key terms of the subpoints. Once you see one, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. If you look at your example sermon, or if you don't have it with you, just look at what I have up here. Let me get oriented here myself. Here we are. Here's the proposition. Because God will judge sin. So this is in your example sermon. Because God will judge sin, we must proclaim his word in every situation. Paul tells Timothy plainly, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and is appearing in his kingdom. Everything we do is before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In light of this divine oversight, let us encourage each other to proclaim the word of God, to rescue the needy, to defend the truth, and to fulfill our duty. Now, you see the underlying terms. Where will those terms reappear? to rescue the needy, to defend the truth, and fulfill our duty. Well, you see the first main point coming, right? Because God will judge sin, we must proclaim his word to rescue the needy. All right? We know defend the truth and fulfill our duty are coming, and they will be in the magnet terms, magnet clauses of the main points that are to come. A billboard is just what it says. Driving down this sermon highway, and I got this billboard, and it says what's ahead. And I'm using the key terms, this knitting again with the terms that will become familiar to the ear. I'm saying, here's what's ahead and using key terms of what is ahead in the main points to organize the thoughts of the message. Now, tell me where this will serve you and where it won't serve you. When do I want to use billboards? Say, I want you to know what's ahead. When will I want to do that? As opposed to, will I ever not want to tell you what's ahead? Is there a strategy for not telling people what's ahead? Okay. Sometimes if they know what's ahead, they're not going to go down that highway. Okay. So there can be strategies to veil impact. Okay. Now, it's a strategy. It's not I just couldn't, I didn't know what was coming. (laughs) Okay. So there can be a reason to veil intention to give greater impact. But most of the time, it helps people to know where we're going. Okay, so they have, they have some orientation in what we're doing. Chris? Sure. It, there, there can be issues that, that you know if I say it too early, people will not listen to what I need to tell them. So I may build the case before I state its conclusion. Most of the time we don't do that, but there's, we certainly need to be aware of the wisdom of that strategy at times. And we talked even the other day about uh, we see even the Bible doing that at times as the strategy sometimes is built. Why do we use billboards quickly? To help the preacher clarify his own thought. That helps. And then to help listeners see the plan of the message. 
The hints for using billboards, here's, it's just the old speaker's maxim, right? We tell them what we're going to say. Then we say it. Then remind them that we said what we said we would say. <laughs> okay? It's just this. We signal, tell, remind. Signal, tell, remind. Signal what I'm going to say. Say it. Remind them what I said. So a billboard is signaling what you're going to say. The explanation is saying it. The tieback is remind what you said and tie it to the whole. So signal, say, remind. Something just to observe. If I use a billboard after the proposition, it's going to use the key terms of the magnet clauses of the main points. It's going to sound very similar to the summary and the conclusion. Remember the concise summary and the conclusion has the key terms of the magnet clauses of the main points. So the billboard may sound a great deal like the concise summary in the conclusion. Now what have I done for the ear now? Wow, have I knit this sermon together so that it can be well followed and the reasoning is now coming together. I said what I was going to talk about. I talked about it. And now I'm concluding with even a reminder of those terms that you see. I did discuss what I said we would discuss. It has a sense of cohesion. And let's say the word in a wrong sense. But a sense of professional planning. This was not just a throw together thing. You knew where you were going and you brought me there. You planned it well. You exegeted the scriptures and you showed me what they meant. You knew what you were accomplishing, and you did it. And using those key terms at both phases, early and late, accomplishes that. Just some hints as we finish off this wording on transitions. For verse references, how do we use them? Verse references are usually stated immediately after the principal statement of the main point or subpoint that needs to be proven. We've done this over again and over again, right? State, place, proof. We state a main point. We place where it is in the text. Identify the verse. Just a caution. Do you see there in the middle of that little paragraph? Try not to say, look with me at verses 8 through 13. What do I say? Look with me at verses 8 through 13. What they mean is, can anybody look at verses 8 through 15, 8 through 13 in the few seconds you gave? They can't do it. We try typically not to do that unless I'm going to stop and I'm actually going to read all of those verses. Usually when we state and place, I say, look with me at verse 13. Right in the middle of the verse it says, and then I read it. Okay, I read the portion of the verse that applies to what I'm I don't just cite the number. I read the portion of the verse that proves what I'm saying. Now, there are some exceptions. And the expositional and the next kind of dash there says, expositional points usually, that is, main point statements or subpoints usually have a text reference immediately following them. But when expounding a narrative or developing an idea based upon context or genre, you may simply have to identify the event or textual feature or aspect of the context that proves your point. Listen. If I said, and Goliath fell down, look with me in verse 14, it says... Goliath fell down, you know. They already knew Goliath fell down. It may be enough to refer to the narrative portion that everybody already knows. 
Now, if I need the precise wording of the narrative, David said, you come with sword, javelin, and spear. I come in the name of the Lord. I may want to say, look at verse 13 where he says that. I may want to look at... But it may be that there are events that everybody knows that I don't need to refer to by verse name in long narratives. Just a little hint there. Second hint. Context may not have a verse. I may say, Paul is in prison when he writes this, and still he speaks with great hope. Now, I can't say, look with me at verse 3. It says he's in prison. That's the context of the writing of the letter. So, and that may be part of a sub-point, but I may have to refer to context rather than cite a verse. But most of the time, I will actually cite the verse and read the portion that applies to it. And that's the transition between the statement and the explanation itself. So it's actually the reading of the verse or the portion of the verse that supports what your explanation is going to say. Now, a little quick reminder as we get to Romans 6 here. Understanding the retention hierarchy. We've done this before. If you say, what is going to be most remembered out of a sermon? You know the illustrations, right? Then you remember applications. How much are they going to remember transitions? <laughs> well, not at all. So why do we bother? Because the transition, or excuse me, the retention hierarchy is flawed. Do you remember what actually goes on top in that space there that's at the top? Above conclusion, introduction, illustration, above all those things. What is more remembered than any sermon component? ethos of the speaker. The ethos of the speaker. What is ethos? Credibility and compassion. Credibility and compassion. What are transitions serving? Credibility and compassion. I can logically see how this is connected and you care enough about me to glue it together. When it's not glued together, people don't just think you don't think well. They think you don't care well. So when we use transitions to knit this thing together, what we're ultimately building is not only understanding of our sermon. We are saying to people, you can understand this, and I care enough about you to word it in a way that can be understood. Let's go on uh, quickly to Lecture 17, because I want these two lectures to kind of stand together in your memory and uh, these are not difficult concepts. You're kind of saying, well, that's kind of plain and matter of fact, true. But uh, it'll help us to think of how people listen to what we're saying. We're going to do the quick midterm review here of what we just said. What are some basic functions of transitions? If you say review and preview, I'm happy. What's a dialogical transition? A question asked out loud. A question asked out loud in the body of the sermon. What is the key wording beaconing behind a logical connection transition? Not only, but what? Not only, but also. So logical connection transitions are always not only, but also. What is a billboard in a sermon and how is it used? It's use of key words to preview. A billboard is use of key words to preview what's coming. They could be the key words of following subpoints. Or they could be the key words of following main points. So a preview, excuse me, a billboard is a use of keywords to preview. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Sensing a call from God to serve in ministry? 
visit covenantseminary.edu, check out our degree programs and the many other distinctives that make Covenant Seminary a place committed to equipping you for a lifetime of ministry. That's covenantseminary.edu.